The latest tax and spending bill provides nearly $80 billion for the IRS, but that's over 10 years. More than half the money is designated for enforcement, but there's also a few billion for what the bill calls taxpayer services. For what they're anticipating, we turn to the president of the IRS-centered Professional Managers Association, Chad Hooper. Chad, good to have you back. It's nice to be here, Tom. Great to see you again. And this all became official since we last spoke. Now the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is the law of the land, that $80 billion, a lot of debate over that. But there is definitely hiring and beefing up of the IRS staff that's intended under this. Some strange numbers bandied about 87,000 people over 10 years. What does it look like actually the IRS has to do now? Let's begin with the hiring front. Sure. On hiring, our recruiting mission at the service has been challenged and remains so. This bill doesn't do much to make recruiting and retention any simpler, right? We've talked before about the IRS's challenges in recruiting based upon pay and so relying on folks with a public service sort of motivation, I guess, to come to government who want to work in tax administration. In the bill, there's funding for additional staff, and there's this conversation around 87,000 employees. We've been trying to get the word out that that is a hiring projection over a decade. Over that same decade, 52,000 employees will retire. So that's really only adding 35,000. And then of that 35,000, 20,000 are currently vacant roles that we've lost since 2010. So we're really only adding 15,000 from our 2010 figure, which was the last time the IRS was fully staffed. In 2010, we weren't able to answer all of our phone calls. We weren't able to open all of the mail on time. And so that's what we would be looking to, you know, sort of replenish to be sure that we can serve all of our taxpayers adequately. And if you look at, I'm just looking at one of the breakdowns of the bill. This is from the Tax Foundation. They said that of that $80 billion over the 10 years, 45, almost 46 of it, or two-thirds of it, is for what the foundation sees as enforcement, and only 9% of it is for taxpayer services. But the services is what has gotten the IRS in trouble, in a way, with the Inspector General for Tax Administration and so on, because as you say, they can't answer the phone. So do you anticipate that that $33 billion or $3 billion over 10 years per year, can help in that area? Yeah, enormously. So there are a couple of different ways that the funding bill will help the way that taxpayers interact with the IRS. The first is that there is some dedicated funding to enhance the personalization of taxpayer experience. There's a 2019 piece of legislation where the IRS has been working to improve customer experience, but we have had no funding to do that. Having these $4.5 billion to enhance the taxpayer call experience, reduce hold times, expand our online offerings, better improve the ways that taxpayers can help themselves in their online accounts will go a long, long way to sort of drive people off of the default, which is just trying to call us to ask us a question. But there are so many ways that the tax system can be easier to interact with. Those are plans that we've been working on for 10 and sometimes 20 years. We just have never had the money to implement them. So that's what that funding is for. However, there's another 25 or more billion dollars for operations in the bill, which isn't defined very clearly, I think, in the bill text. But that will also help us to support very vast IT improvements. And so when someone is calling the IRS right now, they're speaking to someone who has to look into one of 60 different windows to look in your IRS account. And they may not have access to all of them. They may not be trained in all of them. And so when you 
do get through to someone in the IRS, you're not speaking to someone who has a full 360 degree picture of your account. And that also hampers our ability to serve you well. So that IT investment, that operational enhancement will go a long, long way to making the service that we do deliver a very efficient so that when you call, you can get a complete answer the first time. We're speaking with Chad Hooper, president of the Professional Managers Association of the IRS, and this question of enforcement for which there is the biggest block of money in improvement. That presumably is, as Thomas Jefferson might have said, sending agents to harass us and eat out our hard-earned fortunes, or at least that's how it's portrayed in some circles. What do you actually anticipate, and what does it take to get someone to do enforcement for the IRS? So I guess I should say that enforcement at the IRS... I know, I threw a little red meat at you there. No, 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 I appreciate it. In an appropriation for the IRS, enforcement's what we do. So a lot of what we do falls in that. If you owe the IRS money, or if you get a bill from the IRS unexpectedly, you call us, the person you're speaking to is funded out of enforcement dollars. They work in our collection function, even though you're just speaking to someone on the phone. That's part of that enforcement budget. The people who answer mail or issue notices when you owe us money, those are all people who work in enforcement as well. Enforcement is the largest estate within the IRS. So it's not just people who are federal marshals that are coming with guns to seize your assets in the middle of the night. That's a very extreme very small and narrow section of IRS workers. They do exist, and we've heard some talk of them in the media. We have 2,500 special agents who do very dangerous work internationally. However, generally, an enforcement agent is someone who's performing an audit in an office or in the mail, or it's someone who has to collect taxes that are owed. And like I said, that can be someone who's just sending you a bill in the mail, or it's someone um, that you're coming to visit in a walk-in office, or someone who's coming to your place of business or your home if it's a lot of money to help you get into a payment arrangement. What it takes to hire in those roles, right now, it's going to be a lot of folks with accounting backgrounds. Our examination function is what has suffered the most in the last 10 or 15 years of underfunding. We have about 8,000 auditors who can audit a high-wealth return in the entire world out of 78,000 current working employees. And that simply isn't enough. If we doubled that workforce to 16,000, which would allow us to audit the returns of more people, 1,600 wealthy people instead of 800 wealthy people, it would help us to narrow this tax gap, which sure. currently is $600 billion down to you know a more manageable number for our country. But it strikes me that the knowledge base for people in enforcement and the people in customer service is pretty similar. And so there's the same learning curve you would have in hiring external people for whatever the function might be. That's exactly true. Yeah. For someone to perform an audit successfully for the IRS, for a taxpayer at any income level, it takes probably about three years to complete their training. And it's the same for someone who completes customer service on the phone. It's about three to four years before someone can accurately and completely serve any taxpayer who calls us. So it does take time. If we were to hire everyone we needed today, we wouldn't be ready for four years for everyone to begin seeing the dividend that the IRA will pay. What we'd like to be able to ask folks is, you know, as we're scaling up and we intend to do that in a very phased approach, it's going to take probably the lifetime of this legislation to really see its impact. That brings up the issue that this is enabling or authorizing dollars, but it's going to be up to each Congress over the next 10 years to actually appropriate that money. And that's always questionable. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, it sure is. And that uncertainty is something the IRS is prepared for. Unfortunately, we're one of the agencies that is very used to having a long-term plan that now we're going to have to fight for. And we know that we're going to have to deliver on. You know, that's why Secretary Yellen and Commissioner Reddig and PMA as a part of this conversation as well, we're working over the next six months to put together a very robust plan so that lawmakers can see the importance of continuing to fund this bill and why their constituents and why American taxpayers need an IRS that can function and serve them. Chad Hooper is president of the Professional Managers Association at the IRS. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today, 
that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way 
to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 